Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA more at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org. And today on Every Day is Earth Day, we are going to be talking about the Mississippi River and an organization that works to make it better. So this morning I'm going to welcome Whitney Clark, who is the Executive Director of Friends of the Mississippi River. Good morning, Whitney. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your interest. Well, I've, I've been getting the newsletter from the Friends of the Mississippi for a while, and you do a lot of really interesting things. And of course, this show is all about the environment. And I did not realize... You said to me before we got on the air that the Friends of the Mississippi River has been around for 30 years. Can you talk a little bit about its history and what you do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this summer, this month, actually. So the people who who formed Friends of the Mississippi River back in 1993 saw a river that was uh, not being treated very well. And... They wanted to have an organization that could celebrate the river, speak up for the river, be a voice for the river when it can't speak for itself, be an advocate, and, you know, just kind of pay attention to, to the great river. And so that's what we've tried to do over the 30 years. Um, I, haven't, I haven't been uh, part of the staff for 30 years. I've only been around for 26, oh. but, <laughs> but it's... Uh, you know, it's a it's a growing organization. Uh, we've got a staff of uh, 25 professionals who um, who work in a bunch of different areas. Now, I look forward to talking a little bit about that today. Well, Whitney, what was there any particular thing about the Mississippi River that brought up this need for the group? Was there a certain type of pollution? You know, we we hear about you know there used to be sewage dumped in without sewage systems, things like that, or was it uh, businesses along there that used to dump their waste? Was there anything in particular that sort of made people think like, oh, we should do something? Well, you know, it, it was it was both the the amazing, wonderful benefits that the river. That, that I think we all recognize the river has, as well as some of those threats. So that when you combine that, those two things, it sort of uh, spurs you to action. You know, the Mississippi is, of course, one of the great rivers of the world. It's a, an ecological resource of truly global significance. It's a flyway for more than half of North America's waterfowl and shorebirds and countless millions of other birds. It's a um, source of drinking water for more than 20 million Americans, including most of us who live in Minneapolis and St. Paul area. You know, it's a rich historical asset. Obviously, indigenous people were living along the Mississippi for thousands of years before European settlers got here. And then you know, uh, as Europeans arrived, we we built our cities on our rivers. And, you know, Minneapolis is where it is because of the Falls of St. Anthony, where um, early pioneers wanted to take advantage of the, the water power. And St. Paul is located at the, the, basically the head of navigation. It was the furthest place upstream that uh, a, a steamboat could reliably navigate uh, in the summer. So it's got all these all these great qualities. You know, here in the Twin Cities, we 
we recreate along the river. We're fortunate to have, you know, many states and regional parks along the river. It's a national park. I don't know um, if many of your listeners know this, but back in 1988, Congress designated our 72-mile stretch of the Mississippi through the Twin Cities as the Mississippi National River and Recreation Area. Hmm. No, I did not know that. So, yeah, so many people don't um, don't know that, but they did that because Congress recognized that the Mississippi River here in the Twin Cities is very, very unique. It it changes more in our 72-mile stretch here in the Twin Cities than it does anywhere else along its length. So it's a it's a rich resource. So you know that's part of it. That you know we if you live near it you care about it and you love it and you know how special it is and how important to our community it is and yes there are many there are many threats there were 30 years ago there were many threats to the river um some of those have gotten better but we're still we're still here obviously um trying to address some of the the challenges the river faces you know you asked about water pollution back in the 1970s, um, fisheries biologists who were doing uh, fish sampling in St. Paul, in the reach of the river in St. Paul, what's known as Pool 2, they found no fish in their sample nets. Wow. So the the river was very, very impaired, and that Mm -hmm. is due to all kinds of pollution from wastewater, sewage, and industrial pollutants, um, pollutants from um, urban stormwater. And, you know, fortunately, um, that situation has improved significantly since the early 70s, uh, mostly thankful to the Clean Water Act, uh, which passed in 1972 initially and um, imposed a regulatory framework for uh, many sources of pollutants to not just the Mississippi River, but all of our nation's waters. What were some of the actions during that time that has made a difference? You said, you know, how it was so impaired, there weren't any fish, and now I, I believe there are fish in there. So what were some of the major things that made a difference through the years? Yeah, so, you know, the Clean Water Act was passed in 72, as I said, and as the, that regulatory framework took effect, Businesses or public entities that discharged pollutants to the river were required to meet certain standards. Uh, basically, they were required to clean up the what they're discharging to the river, and that has resulted in you know a major improvement in water quality. So, yeah, that same reach of the river here in St. Paul. Um, now supports a trophy walleye fishery and a and a pretty healthy assemblage of uh, of fish species. So it's a a reminder that you know we can have an impact on the health of our environment if we take you know decisive steps. And one of the one of the ways to do that is to pass laws like the Clean Water Act. Another one that your your listeners will probably be familiar with is the the banning of DDT, the pesticide that um, was very commonplace across America in the 20th century. And in the early 70s, Congress took 
took steps to ban DDT because we became aware of the impact that that was having on many bird species, including our national bird, the bald eagle. And bald eagle populations were plummeting in the lower 48, and uh, it was a it was a very serious crisis. After we banned the manufacture of DDT and the and the use of DDT um, in the United States, the uh, the eagle population has rebounded fantastically. So here in our national park, here along the river in the Twin Cities, uh, we have. I think at last count, 56 breeding pairs oh, wow. of bald eagles. Um, you know, you can't you can't really walk along the river or paddle a canoe along the river in the Twin Cities without seeing some bald eagles now. And you know, I'm old enough to remember growing up that um, it was a it was a very rare sight anywhere in Minnesota to see bald eagles. So. We've done some good things, and we're making some progress. Whitney, what is the situation for mercury? I know we've heard about not eating fish from rivers, for example, because of mercury content. Is, has that changed, or is that still an issue? Um, it's still an issue. Um, you know, a big source of mercury in all of our surface waters is, is the emissions from coal-fired mm. power plants. Okay. And we we're, we're obviously in part due to the climate emergency. We are um, making good progress in reducing emissions from from coal plants. But mercury is still still an issue with with fish, particularly um, some of the predator species. So your listeners, you know, if they're concerned about that, especially anglers, and most anglers know this, that, you know, there are, there are limits. There are uh, Minnesota Department of Health um, guidelines for how many fish you should eat, depending on who you are. Pregnant women, for instance, have uh, lower limits than, than other people. So that's something that we're still, we're still dealing with, I'm, I'm afraid. And as far as the Friends of the Mississippi River, I know you have a number of events. Now, you mentioned the, the number 72 miles. So is that the length of river that your group deals with for the Friends of the Mississippi River, or do you go all the way up and down the Mississippi River? Well, you know, that's how we started. It's interesting. We, we started with a, with a real focus on the Twin Cities, and I would say that's still our, our core area. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the great things about rivers is when you're thinking about the health of a river and improving the health of the river, you really can't be too parochial. You've got to be thinking about what's upstream of you, and you've got to be thinking about the impacts of what you do here have on the people who are people and, and other critters that are downstream. So, honestly, our work has uh, led us to, to work not only statewide, but, but nationally. So, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Water quality. The Mississippi River is impaired. In other words, it does not meet our state standards for water quality in, you know, any, any of, of our Twin Cities reach of the river, unfortunately. The predominant source of pollutants to the Mississippi River and and also to the Minnesota River, where you are, is um, agricultural land uses, mm. mostly 
nutrients um, from fertilizer and sediment uh, or soil particles that are that are washed into our our surface waters from from um, from agricultural land uses so to address that you know we really have to be thinking about state state laws and programs and federal policies to try to um, reduce those pollutants to the river would you say that in more recent years, the use of city sewer systems has helped somewhat to clean up our rivers and lakes because, you know, a lot of it used to just flow right into rivers and lakes. Yes, absolutely. So one of the impacts of the Clean Water Act, and it took, it took several decades for, for us to, to address this, but many, many of our storm sewers had connections. So the storm sewers, just to define the terms I'm using here, are are the the pipes that take rainwater and snow melt off of our our urban areas, parking lots, city streets, rooftops, um, impervious surfaces, and take those to the local water body. Sanitary sewers are are for our sewage and. When those were initially constructed, they they had some connection so that if you had a big storm event and there was a lot of rainfall, for instance, or snow melt in the storm sewer system, it would overflow into the uh, into the sanitary sewer and sanitary waste sewage was carried to our water bodies as a result of that. Now, in recent decades, we've spent you know millions and millions, tens of millions, probably hundreds of millions of dollars in separating those systems. So our, our, in most places, except for a, a few lingering, difficult to get at places, our sanitary sewers and our, um, our storm sewers are separate. So that has had a big impact on reducing water quality um, threats to, to our, not just our rivers, but you know, our lakes as well. And then, but that, that did leave us with a, an added challenge because then we had, we had these stormwater sewers that flow, you know, carry pollutants off of our urban landscapes into our local water bodies. And that can bring lots of pollutants. And so now it's mostly cities that maintain these urban stormwater systems, they are required to meet certain standards and to design their catchments and design their stormwater uh, systems to minimize pollutants flowing into our rivers. So that's, that's gotten better as well. What hasn't gotten better is, is um, the pollutants that are coming from agriculture. And, you know, I know you are in a, in an agricultural area there mm-hmm. in Mankato. Um, and the Minnesota River is very polluted yes. and one of the, one of the most, single most, you know, largest sources of pollutants to the Mississippi River. And that's because of the way we practice agriculture. It's not, um, I want to be careful to be clear that it's not the farmer's fault these systems, these in, the way we practice agriculture today, is 
pretty much impossible to do without polluting our our water. And so, you know, that's something we're very interested in doing is transitioning to new types of cropping systems that can be profitable for farmers and and rural communities, but also uh, better for our waters and better for our climate. I noticed that on your site, the Friends of the Mississippi River, there you have an actual call to action site for volunteers and advocates. And one of the the things recently was what the Mississippi River needs from the farm new farm bill. And you were asking people to go out and talk with their Congress people about what can be done. For example, so is that a big yeah. part of what you do? And what are you asking people to do to make things better? Yeah, so th- thanks for the question. Yes, we're very excited about new agricultural crops and cropping systems that, that I, I mentioned that have the potential to be both good for farmers and good for our water. And so these these crops are new, newly developed perennial crops, in other words, crops that are planted and grow for multiple years, grow and yield for multiple years, and winter annual crops. These are, these are crops that are planted in the fall and harvested in the spring. And they're commodity crops that farmers, farmers grow because there's a market for them. And these are just beginning to be developed and are emerging. And there's a lot that policymakers can do to help to stimulate the, the growth and development of those crops and cropping systems for farmers to take advantage of. So the Farm Bill, um, which happens, Congress does usually every five years, is the, is the primary policy and funding, uh, authorizes funding for all kinds of conservation programs and, and, and everything else related to agriculture. And so, um, we're very involved in trying to uh, get the Farm Bill to include some provisions that would advantage some of these new cropping systems as we go forward. I'm sure you're getting some resistance because people don't like to be told to change. And will this support the agriculture community, I think, is what is going to be the thought. And as you mentioned, we are a major agriculture center here. The green seam is what they call it. So how do you weigh you know, the the benefits to preserving the river with the issues that agriculture might have saying, well, we can't make a living this way. Right, right. And uh, I, I completely understand that and agree with that. And um, so one of the great things about these new, these new crops and cropping systems is that they, they're profitable for farmers. So it's not a it's not a regulatory approach. This won't mm-hmm. happen unless farmers want it to happen, and we don't expect them to do it out of the goodness of their heart. That's one of the really I think excellent advantages of this new what we call continuous living cover uh, approach to agriculture. That they, you know, it will be successful if if it's profitable for farmers. And so that's part of the work that we're doing now is trying to stimulate these markets for these new crops. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, on the perennial side, 
some of your listeners may have heard of Kernza. Mm-hmm. It's a cousin of wheat. It's a perennial that can be planted. It yields for multiple years, so a farmer would plant it and and harvest, have mar- multiple harvests of it for um, for three or four years, and then um, move it around somewhere else on the farm. In the process, you know, in the meantime, that that crop is it's got very very long roots up to you know three four meters deep into the soil that is taking up nutrients holding the soil in place preventing erosion and runoff with great benefits for for water quality another example in the winter annual category are winter oil seeds like camelina which is being developed here at the university of minnesota it is an oil seed that farmer would plant in the fall and harvest in the spring before they put in their their summer annual. So in a two-year cycle, instead of having only two crops, the farmer would have three crops, all sold as commodities. And um, importantly for the environment, for the rivers, that over the winter, and especially during that spring runoff period, when we lose so many nutrients and uh, so much soil off of our agricultural landscapes, that soil is covered with green growing plants. I mean, as soon as it warms up in the spring, those crops, those plants are taking off. And so we think there's a lot of potential for this new continuous living cover agriculture to be really good for for farmers and rural communities and um, be very beneficial for our state as well. Would that mean we would no longer produce as much corn and soybeans, which are used to feed like the the swine, things like that? I mean, I'm sure you're going to well, get... Well, we would, you know, I think one of the great things about these continuous living cover systems is that they, they can be compatible with the summer annuals like corn and soybeans and wheat and sugar beets that we grow so much of in Minnesota. So, they're, they're, but they'd be planted in longer rotations and in relay with these other crops. So farmers, farmers would have not only um, more crops and more yield per acre from these from from these new novel crops, but also um, that diversity that that diversity also is good from an economic standpoint because markets fluctuate and sometimes you know the corn prices are down but maybe your your oilseed prices are up and so they have less exposure to a single crop uh, in the in the fluctuating markets Whitney I notice on your site the friends of the Mississippi River you've got a uh... 30 ways you can help the river. So there are 30 ways in this list. It's a great list of things. What are some of the things our listeners maybe could do right now that could be of a benefit to our rivers? Well, I would say, you know, one thing people could do is go to our website, www.fmr.org, and sign up to to get our, our electronic newsletter, which we send out every month, which is full of uh, opportunities for people to take action, either in their personal lives, in terms of uh, volunteering, or, you know, more importantly, or often more importantly, getting engaged in public decision making. So, um, talking to your legislators, talking to your mayor and your city council, talking to your members of Congress as they are considering uh, things to do 
to impact the river. But you're right, the, the list of uh, 30 ways to help the river on our website is a, is a, great, a great resource that people can start thinking about. So things like when you take your dog for a walk, um, pick up your pet waste. If you don't, that, that often is a, is a major source of bacteria, making it unsafe to, to swim in our local waters. Get, get involved in, as I said, get involved in, in your community in terms of addressing policy issues as they arise at the, at the state capitol or in Washington. Be careful about how you manage your, your own property so that you're not flushing unnecessary pollutants into the local storm drain. There's so much people can do, and I know your listeners listen to your show because they, they care about these things. And so I hope, I hope that they will um, take advantage of the resources on our website and learn more about this. So what is the advantage of becoming a member of the Friends of the Mississippi River what I mean, I know you have events and things. Most of them I see are centered in the Twin Cities. But for listeners who may be interested in more, what what should they know? Yeah, lots of advantages um, and lots of ways to participate as an advocate, um, no matter where you live. So you you know everybody in in our country and in our state are are represented by elected officials, and um, it's our the way our democracy works. They need to hear from us about these issues. So, you know, that's one of the benefits um, to being a member of Friends of the Mississippi River is to stay informed about the opportunities for protecting the river and protecting our environment and to be able to weigh in with your with your representatives as as they're considering bills and, and funding opportunities to protect the river. Well, I want to thank you. We have run out of time, but uh, been very great to chat with you. We've been talking with Whitney Clark, the executive director of the nonprofit, the Friends of the Mississippi River, whose aim is to make the Mississippi River and a better place for all of us and in cleaning up and in the environment and, and all this climate change, all the things we've got going on. You're trying to make one part of the world a little better. Well, thank you for um, your interest. Appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you today. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. All right, there you go. Now we've learned about another organization that's working, and you can be a part of it. They advocate for cleaner rivers, and that is the Friends of the Mississippi River. Every Day is Earth Day is supported by Minnesota Valley Federal Credit Union with two locations in Mankato since 1934. It pays to bank where your part owner member NCUA. More at mnvalleyfcu.coop. And Every Day is Earth Day is also supported by members of the Executive Board of the South Central Minnesota Clean Energy Council. Find out more at smcleanenergy.org.